Hello and welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 8, where we'll be revisiting the film Live and Let Die. So, I survived. Uh, we did it. I think, hopefully, that's as bad as it gets for me, and we are now over the hump and it's nothing but clear sailing thanks to old Roger Moore coming in and taking over the franchise imagine if Sean had stayed on and we got another film like Diamonds Are Forever would this podcast even continue I don't think so no but it's (laughs) like apparently they did ask Sean like they probably knew what the answer was going to be but apparently they did say like so one more right and he was just like nah (laughs) (laughs) I'm good I'm good thanks yeah yeah, he no, said I would either admit. I'm back with Mr. Wit and Mr. Kid, or it's not happening. Oh, don't... Re- You're making me think of what, what could have been. Making <laughs> me sad. No, I will admit, like, even even I got a little bit by the end. I was like, Joe, what? Diamonds are forever. I'm Diamonds are forever out now. I think that, that film is good in small doses. <laughs> time to move on. I think it's the case for you, though, right? Where, like, watching it, you can have a good time but discussing it for nearly four hours, maybe that's a bit much. <laughs> discussing the madness of that film, and yeah, I think you're right. I think if you do that of any film, you're going to end up on a dark path, but especially one with characters like Mr. Winter, Mr. Kid, and Batho Subs, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to think about it too much. No. So yeah, we are in a new era, and I have to confess something. I think ahead of this rewatch, I wasn't 100% sure if I've ever seen this film before. Uh, like out of all of the Bond films, like the Roger Moore era is definitely the one I'm least confident about. But I was kind of like, I don't know if I've seen this. Like a Ooh. lot of the Sean Connery ones I couldn't really remember, but I can't remember at all watching this one. I think now that I have watched it, I think I saw it. But I'm not sure. Like this might have been the first time I've ever seen this film. Oh, wow. Maybe like all the way through properly. Yeah, yeah, like definitely seeing clips and stuff like that. You know, there is some iconic standout scenes here. But yeah, I, there's a lot of this stuff where like maybe I didn't see this well, ever. better 50 years late than never, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> can, can I say to Roger what I thought about it? Is that still on the table? Uh, maybe if we get a board out later on, we could try. <laughs> yeah, I, I know a certain baron that maybe we could help with that. <laughs> But what about you? Like this is uh, like a pig in a certain type of excrement for you, isn't it? That's that's what's going to happen the next few weeks. Well, you say that, but in episode zero, when we were doing our top five and bottom five, I put this as my fourth worst Bond film. Ah, uh, yes. I, I had two. I had two Roger Moore's in my list for bottom films, which is quite surprising, coming from a, a self-proclaimed Moore fan. Mm. Um, but the reason it was down there is because. It is his first Bond film, and I, I just have a memory of it being a little bit of a shaky start. Uh, and I will say that <laughs> other films on my on my bottom five list, which I have come to realise was a big mistake, like Doctor No, for example, uh, <laughs> and Thunderball, which I, I turned out I didn't mind. I think this might be the first one on my bottom list that I am actually still a bit more confident of my decision. I, I think I, I think I'm sticking by the fact that this actually isn't a great start for Roger Moore and they do get a lot better for me okay that's quite interesting because for me I think I had a rough idea in my head about what I thought of this film even though like I couldn't remember if I ever seen it but I was like 
well, I know I'm going to like it more than Diamonds. Yeah, <laughs> that's, quite that's obvious. true. And I actually really do like the Sean Connery era and George Lazenby. So it's going to be towards the bottom. So it was quite interesting to see if I I matched that, which I won't give away because we've got a, a few hours here to discuss oh, it. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. but it, it, you know, it was all about for me like, yeah, I'm after what happened last week, I'm definitely after a different Bond and something a bit new because it's really interesting that we've had three films now with three different Bonds. That's yeah. that's never happened and probably will never happen again. Yeah, and I think unlike George Lazenby, which I, we probably discussed that he was trying to channel Sean Connery in his portrayal, keep the flow going, they clearly did not do that with Roger Moore. And they said, be your own Bond. Do not follow in Sean's footsteps. And so even more so, you're seeing this very sudden change of personality of the Bond character. And um, yeah, I think it, it works in a lot of ways. And, and in other ways, it was a bit of a shock watching this film. Okay, well, let's get into it then, right? Yeah, let's get into it. So we start with the circles. I don't have anything to say about the circles, I'm oh. afraid. Nothing? I think they were just normal circles. I don't think they're messing with it anymore. <laughs> they're done. They're done now. Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I, I hope I'm not wrong. Because otherwise, why am I here? But like, I, I don't <laughs> think they changed anything. I think it's just the circles as we know and love them. Yeah, yeah. I think I was a bit sad that the, the gun barrel itself uh, didn't have that well, I know it was only because it was for Diamonds Are Forever, but it had that nice shimmer that we were talking about last time, and that's gone now. That's gone. No more sparkly bond. It's just gone back to the flat design. So I was a little bit sad by that, but it's a, you know, it's fine. I can forgive it. Yeah, so we get the circles come across, and then we get to see Roger Moore straight away and do the walk. So for me, it was a solid walk. It was a good stride. I know where this is going, yeah. Nice gait. Yeah. But when he turns and shoots the gun... <laughs> He gets all like bent up or something. He's at like a 45 degree angle at the hip, bending forward, just really awkwardly standing there. And it's like, oh, Roger, such a strong start. And you you, you do this on me? Well, I, I thought you were going to go somewhere different with this because you're right. He does have sort of a bit of like a, he's just pulled something in his back. But also, um, the gun goes off too early. Like this, oh, it's definitely, the smoke goes off way before, well, not way before, but shortly before he's actually pointing straight down the camera. So oh. it's like, could they not have done one more take maybe where the, the, the cap goes off at the right time? <laughs> it really feels like with these, and I, it's such a picky thing to look at, but it really does feel like every single one of those has been one take. Yeah, one and done. Yeah. Like it really feels like that because there's just all these silly things. But if you did like 20 of them, each time there's no way the ones that we've seen are the ones they would pick yeah i don't i i have to imagine that well i don't i don't know i don't know why maybe it's in the contract i'm gonna do one walk and that's it yeah for the whole like five or six films that he does for the 30 years he plays bond for oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well we'll keep an eye out on that next week i think we'll, we'll check in with roger see how he's doing with his gun yeah yeah, uh, and then this goes to the film, the intro sequence where it goes on New York City, and at the United Nations, and we get some very shaky off footage uh, of the outside. I'm assuming it's some sort of stock footage, which is not a really a great way to start your film, but okay. 
Uh, and we have all these different diplomats in a room as part of the United Nations. Some guy from Hungary is saying stuff in Hungarian, I would assume, and everyone looks very visibly bored. Well, yeah, wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, yeah, but I don't even know what you're saying. Like, they have a translator, so I guess it's even more boring than what it might seem. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd be straight to the... I'd, I'd be waiting, looking at my watch for the lunch. Come on now, get those sandwiches out. <laughs> they're going to be coming anytime soon <laughs> there's a joke in there about hungry and uh oh yeah sandwiches but we're above that sort of thing mm. Uh, mm. so everyone looks bored and we see a load of diplomats and one is from the united kingdom who looks very visibly bored and we cut to a translator and the translator in this like control room type place and he's saying in english what the guy is saying and this is done through like headphones, it seems like. So he's talking to a mic, and then that's pumping all this audio to all these different headphones through different wires. And from the side, a hand comes in, it unplugs the wire for the United Kingdom, plugs in a scary red wire. <laughs> <laughs> and then the man like pumps yeah. a device like a plunger of death. <laughs> Yeah, and starts pumping it. We hear a little bit of an odd sound, and the UK diplomat freaks out and dies. He just dies there, there and then, and no one cares. No yeah. one cares. <laughs> no one could be bothered to react. They're so bored, they didn't even notice someone dying next to them. <laughs> so what is this anyway? Like, what is this actually supposed to be in terms of, like, a, a murder device? I would guess it's like... Some high pitch frequency that uh, I don't know where I'm going with that. It sounded like I was on the right train there, but now I lost it. It's a sound that kills you. <laughs> yeah, because it's one of those things where I kind of expected this to come up again, but as far as I'm aware, it doesn't. It's just oh, he's been killed by some high pitch sound or something. But normally, yeah. when they introduce this like sci-fi city kind of fiction spy stuff, they use it again or give it an explanation. But no, I guess we're supposed to just understand. Like, oh yeah, you can just pump a sound into some earphones and they just die. That's just a thing. Well, maybe it's you know like they say about the brown note, the brown note that makes you need to like poo instantly. Hmm. And then like maybe this is another note. This is like the black note that just kills you. It could be. I mean, I'm sure people have looked into that, but yeah, yeah, it, it was odd. It was odd to have this and I think assume that people knew what was happening. Like, you get it because the guy dies, but it's like, no, that's that's not a thing. We've never seen this before. All I know, uh, all I think is that the UN needs to up its security, clearly, because he just walked in straight onto the straight onto the microphone deck. Yeah, there was security, and... but they were just so bored. Oh, they were eating sandwiches. Funny. They were at lunch. <laughs> they got their sandwiches early. Yeah, so mm -hmm. go on in, mate. Just don't do anything with that red wire. I can see it. <laughs> don't touch that. Yeah, I'm watching you. Uh, and then after that very quite quick scene, we then cut to New Orleans, which throughout this, we actually have text on the screen explaining where these locations are. Have we ever had that before? I don't know. I don't know, because I did notice that for the place after this scene, um, where it's, got, like, it's really spelling out where it is. But I can't think of any... Um, did it? No, because it, I remember in like uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Service, we were saying it just, just jumps to places and you just don't know where you are. So I guess this might be. I think it is, but it's such a trope 
in terms of spy films in general, not just Bond. It's quite interesting that this is now the time to to start doing it. Like, it works, it makes sense, because we could jump to very three different locations on this. And in Diamonds Are Forever, they have a similar opening with Sean Connery jumping around, but they instead just have him just kind of say it. So I guess this was kind of a nice way of just like, ah, just kind of put it on screen. But it might have been this film that maybe introduced the trope in the spy films in general that now, like, everyone uses. Wow. Wow, who would have thought? Live and let die, where it all began. Yeah, I Cita- mean, I, citation needed. Yeah, that might be a complete lie. <laughs> oh, we're just we're just roll with it. That's what we do in this podcast. Yeah, yeah. So uh, after that revolutionary new film making technique has been established, well done, mm-hmm. Guy Hamilton, you did it. Uh, we then go to New Orleans and we see this kind of American kind of agent, which I was a little bit confused because we find out that this guy was a MI6 agent, but I guess he's an American MI6 agent. Yeah, I. Yes, you're right. I didn't actually think about that, but maybe, uh, maybe he's a, a he's a dual citizenship or something. Could be. I don't know. It's a. Yeah. Oh, what's that director's name? Uh, Christopher Nolan. It's a Christopher Nolan situation. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, he's standing there in like a trilby. I want to say like that very American kind of spy gangster sort of look combo. And we see this kind of parade start coming around the streets. And at first I was like, this is a pretty slow parade. Like, if this is meant to be a, a proper parade, this is kind of a bit a bit dull, a bit of a bummer. <laughs> and then it turns out it's a funeral. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is imagine they're going, boo, this is boring. And then you see the hearse. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Yeah. That, that is pretty much what happened. And like, then they zoom in on the woman crying and, and stuff like that. And... Uh, we get this little moment where the guy's watching it. Someone else comes up to the guy and says, "Like, or the or the guy in the hat, the the agent says, hey, what's what's going on here? Or whose funeral is this for?'" Um, and the guy says, "It's yours," and gives him the old stab in the stomach. Mm-hmm. And it was quite surprising they actually show the knife go in. I don't think they normally do that for Bond films. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just the good old knife retractable knife trick, but it was a nice big close up of it. Yeah. Yeah, like, I kind of really felt that. It was quite a... I didn't see that coming, to be honest with you. And then just for this kind of... I wouldn't call him a sweet old man, but this kind of unsuspecting old dude just to be like, ah, knife, and then the guy dies. I'm like, wow, that's actually quite quite harsh for for something Bond-related. I would definitely not say sweet old man. He looked a bit like a creep to me. <laughs> yeah, I think he liked it. I think he oh, liked yeah. the old stabbing. Oh, yeah. And this leads to the guy going down... And the the people carrying the, the coffin go over the body and we get this one continuous shot of the coffin coming down, covering the man on the floor, and then it goes back up and the body's gone. How do they do that? I, I'm assuming he must just like grab on, like there's handles inside. That makes sense. And as soon as he's cover, he just holds onto the handles. But it looks really good. I paused it because I was trying to see if they like match cut or something or you could see him sneak off in the background maybe because, you know, we're watching on Blu-ray so maybe there's more details that they wouldn't see. But... <laughs> yeah, no, sneak I... off in the background. It's just in the background. But no, Eating I... a sandwich. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was quite well done. I did, not, I did not consider handles inside. That's very smart. That's all I can think of because, yeah, you see it. They, there's no tricks or anything that it comes down and also very quickly goes back up. Mm. Uh, now in terms of the handles that makes sense from a filmmaking perspective but from the actual logic of the film like that's 
kind of nonsense, but whatever. Like, it's a cool little shot to see a coffin go down and just take this body and for them to, to start walking off. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we should also say that the guy is kind of, what's the word? Reconning, I suppose, a particular fillet of soul restaurant. Like there's yes. an emphasis on this place in the background. And uh, and then that's when the parade and well, the funeral, which then turns into a parade begins. Yes. So now that the man has been murdered and put into the coffin, everyone then just switches gears and just starts dancing and having a big, I love this bit. <laughs> big dance party. They're really into it as well. They're very happy yeah. they've murdered that man and put him away. I, I, I just love the, the, the little bit with the crying woman and then they cut back to her and she's having a great time. I just love the little, yeah, little shot change they had with that character there. So to wrap up the intro sequence, we then cut to a third location. So we're going between these quite quick where it's San Monique. Am I saying that right? Yeah. San Monique, an island in the Caribbean, it says. That's the the text it says on screen. In case someone didn't know where San Monique was, which I didn't. No, I didn't. I appreciate that. And it's a big, giant, ritual dance circle that's going on, basically, where everyone's just screaming and dancing and kind of going a bit crazy and we see that there's this poor what like dude on a pole being flicked with blood and things like Mm. that and there's a man who's very much into this carrying a snake which is so clearly a fake snake i don't think at any point during this scene he was ever carrying a real snake it's it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. I think given the fact that, well, actually, I don't even know watching this in higher quality would is a thing that doesn't sell it. I think even seeing this back then, you would be able to tell that's a fake snake. Um, it, it's, I would say it's just about bearable, but it is not good. I think it's the mouth that puts me off. Because the snake just has its mouth open the whole time with no movement. And that's what makes it feel yeah. like, yeah, that's definitely not real. A snake would not do that for for as long as they show it for. Yeah, and, and also the fact that, I mean, obviously they're not going to um, actually do this, but the, the guy tied up does eventually get bitten by the snake. And you, you, there's nothing there. I don't know how big snake bikes are, but you, you, you would have thought they could have maybe put just a couple drops of red paint so that when he does that, there'd be something on the neck. But it just reacts to nothing. Yeah, that that wasn't great. So yeah, this ends with him biting him with a guy. <laughs> you don't see the snake go and like lunge at this guy tied to the pole and bite him. The guy holding him just like jabs him slightly in the neck. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. a very quick shot because it's clearly fake. And like you say, you don't see any holes. So I think they just wanted to like, right, just quickly give him a little jab and we'll just have him die and he'll do the rest. And we can just get away with this fake snake bit. Yeah. You'd have thought maybe if they couldn't do this very well, they maybe would have thought of a a more art uh, or a more creative way of, of showing this without <laughs> having a, a snake not bite a man so clearly in frame. But um, yeah, this is just a pre-tile sequence. I guess they were just wanting to get this, you know. It's not, it's not the most important part. No, and that's kind of a good way of summing this all up, really, where it all happens all very quick again like that seems to be the way we're going with these pre-title sequences that it's all very quick scenes jumping all over the world i think the most notable thing about these sequences is that the setup like you know this is setting up the part of the film where these mi6 agents across the world are being killed and you're not too sure why but you're just seeing that this happens 
and it's just the same setup as Doctor No. Like it happens across mm. the globe, so it's or in different locations, so it's a little bit different. But it's the exact same thing. MI six agents are being killed, and this I'm jumping ahead a bit, but this eventually leads to Bond going to find out why. Yeah, yeah, no Bond in it, so I, I don't know. I think um, I think I like that just how speedy it is. It just gets over and done with because they're not particularly interesting scenes. There's no big, there's no big stunt, right? There's there's nothing like that. It is purely for this plot. I mean, you might find snakes cool or bands marching bands cool but it's definitely not that kind of big bombastic start that we've had in other in other films yeah it's not a great beginning like i like how they reference these scenes later in the film but as you say this is pure setup and outside of the context like you know i've said in the past i like when the plot is established in the opening i don't always need a cold opening but this is just like you know, you only live twice, you have the space scene, but I feel like the spacing can kind of stand on its own with the music and, and things like that. This is just like, yep, a load of people die across the world. And there you go. So it's, yeah, a bit bit limp. Yeah, and actually one thing I will say just before we get on to the rest of the film uh, is I think kind of related to this, or at least maybe not consciously, but for me, when I was watching it, if this film overall didn't really feel as grandiose as previous Bond films. And part of the reason, I think, is because the aspect ratio changed. So all the previous Bond films, I don't know the actual specific ratio, you know, whatever, it's two to something, blah, 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 cinematic widescreen. But they they usually got bars on them. Um, and this one goes a lot more narrow. I don't know why they chose to do this, but it, it makes it feel more TV-ish and less like a film to me. Not... Not so much that it's going to ruin it, but just a little thing that I did pick up on. It, it does take away from that cinematic feel a bit. I didn't pick up on that, but that makes sense because I did get that feeling from this as well for reasons we'll get on as we go on with this episode. But yeah, there is a, a general vibe with this film of like it's much smaller scale in a lot of ways. And mm. yeah, part of the reason that is probably what you're saying. Like I didn't notice it, but I definitely got that feeling. So that this uh, the aspect ratio probably did play a part. Yeah, and I don't think it changes back until The Spy Love Me. I don't know. I think the next one might also have it. There must have been a reason for it, but who knows. So after the man tied up uh, gets killed by the snake, we go straight into the title sequence. And the main sort of themes of this title sequence is based on voodoo. And you get a lot of fire in this one. And you get lots of skulls. And uh, obviously you have Paul McCartney and Wings and Live and Let Die playing as well. But in terms of just the visuals first... I gotta say, I quite like this one. I quite like this one mainly because of one particular shot, which they they used it a couple times in this pre-tail sequence. But it's a shot where like they have a close-up of the face, and then it just like cuts, and it's a skull. <laughs> and I just really think that's cool. It's such a cool visual, and they have uh, lots of like reds and reds and blues and greens and uh, sparks flying everywhere for things. And I, it's it's. It's nice where it links into the film and has that that plot of the voodoo element in there. Um, And yeah, I just think there's some really interesting visuals. I think song-wise, I always used to say that I really liked this song. It was one of my favourite Bond themes, Live and Let Die. And I still think it's up there, but I do, listening to it again, I do... I always get reminded about how weird, like, it just changes, like, it just changes vibe. So... (laughs) So many times in this song where it has, you know, all the 
chaotic sounds and it will quickly cut to the more mellow bit in the middle and it will go back to being chaotic. And it is very disjointed and I can't work out whether I like that or not. But I think overall, the song and the visuals together, um, this was a good one for me. This is up there so far. Yeah, with the song, it's like... I do like it, but I don't like the the shifts. And mm. it's one particular shift, and it's when it's... I can't remember the lyrics, but, you know, the one where it gets a bit more, like, bouncy or whatever the word would yeah. be. Yeah, yeah, Like, da-da-da-da-da-da. Like, awful. Absolutely awful. <laughs> I remember yeah. reading somewhere about Paul McCartney how, like... Isn't it crazy that, like, he can put to like take three different songs and mash them together and have it work and it's like it's not crazy because it doesn't work no it doesn't and flow it sounds terrible i think the piano being slow and then that building up and going into the main riff excellent i love that stuff but there was just no need to add this third kind of type of music and feel to it and it just really like instantly just sucks me out of this song and yeah. I remember, so we went to go see this as part of the Royal Albert Hall gig for the 60th anniversary in, in 2022. And this might have been my favourite song of that concert, but that's because, you know, having a big orchestra to do that main riff is just was just so incredible. But outside of that, I can't listen to this song, like, just because of how often it shifts and stuff. It's just so weak in some of these areas. But again, it's so, this should be one of my favourites. This should be some of the best because... All the elements are there, and that main riff might be... It's top five in terms of main riffs of any of the Bond themes for me. It's just... Paul McCartney... I mean, I don't listen to the Beatles. I'm not a Beatles guy. I have to hold my hands up. So maybe someone who is more Beatles and Wings and stuff is more used to this sort of shift. But I was like, ah, Just one change. Just take that section out, and you've got such a great song. It's still great moments, but it's just a shame. Yeah, I do. I do think the 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 song would be stronger if it was just a bit a bit more uh, um, kind of consistent with that. So, I think I'm with you with that. Yeah, with the visuals though, it's kind of interesting that we talked about how on a Majesty's Secret Service was like a, a a reboot or a reset of these visuals where they were going in a certain direction and then they kind of wiped the slate a bit and started back to basics for some reason and. This is still following that template where it's a more simplistic kind of sequence where it's just a black background and then they just put women and something that goes along with the motif of the film, which this time is skull and fire, and then just put different kind of colours of those on the screen, mish that, do a different few versions of that, and there you go. But it's kind of a shame because I love the way that the fundable one looked where they completely changed the background to be more water and things like that. But now we're just back with these just pure black backgrounds for the entire time. And I, I'm, I agree with you. This is a really good one. And I actually did really like this sequence overall. Like it really creeped me out. The woman near the beginning where her mm. eyes are really wide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just kind of jumps, cuts, and zooms in on those eyes. It really freaks me out. I'm like, oh, God, <laughs> this is horrible. Uh, but it really sets the tone correctly. But yeah, I kind of wish we got different kind of backgrounds because this still feels like a little bit potentially cheaper or just not quite as big as the ones we saw with Fundable or You Only Live Twice. Like, we still haven't got back to that. It's like we entered a new era of these title sequences and I don't know when we're going to get something a little bit more different that doesn't just follow that formula we've seen many times up to this point. 
Well, we did have one. I can think of one background this this uh, t- uh, title sequence had because it's what I was about to mention. Oh, okay, go <laughs> which, on. Which made me laugh because I imagine in 1973 these things were new and maybe quite interesting. But that one one shot is just you know the, the fiber optic optic things like um, they look like brushes and they're fiber oh, optic yeah, they like, and they spin and <laughs> they change just, colors. Right, they change color. I always associate them things of I don't know, just like. Uh, my nan or my mum having that or something. <laughs> oh, like, no. I imagine, I imagine being really. This kind of lame, but it was put there right in the centre as if it's this really cool looking thing because oh, it lights up and it's got this cool lighting effect. And yeah, like I say, this might have been really, really uh, a, a new item in 1973, but it's it's just like oh, there's that thing that everyone remembers from their childhood and and gets out once a year or something. There's actually the film does this quite a lot. Well, a few times at the beginning, we'll see where it's showing things that I think are meant to be like, oh, look at look at this new bit of equipment. This is really cool. Whereas now we just look at that and think, yeah, that's just a that's just a fiber optic thing, or yeah, that's just a coffee machine. So that 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 aspect of this film, going back and watching it with with uh, all the new tech that we have these days and what we now think of as old tech, is quite interesting. Yeah, I, I haven't experienced that with Bond up to this point, and I don't know what's really changed. I don't know if the fact that we're now firmly in the or we're in the seventies now, if that means that it feels different because it's not the sixties and more grounded in that decade. Yeah, I, I also think just the seventies are not. It's not as attractive as the as the other decades. So, like we always get eighties <laughs> things, like Stranger Things and whatnot. Nineties, I think, are, everyone likes nineties for especially people around our age is nostalgia 60s has yeah, the beatles and and early bond and everything 70s is sort of like what is it, disco i guess it has so maybe that's another reason things just haven't aged as nicely from the 70s like these films is that what you're saying is that what you well, well we will see won't we yeah uh, uh yeah that will again okay, overall very good sequence i think one of the best ones we've we've seen in a while at the very least but this all leads to a woman sleeping and we zoom out and we see Roger Moore as James Bond. There he is. And he's in his bed and there's a French woman and there's a buzzing at the door and it's M. But just to go back, it's something that, you know, we we're talking about how they always put a lot of effort in terms of revealing Bond and like doing the re-reveal of like, we're going to hide it and tease it. And then, ah, look, there he is. And they've always seemed to fumbled it. So I kind of like that. Especially the fact that this is the third Bond in as as many films that they just don't like. They just didn't bother. They were just like, "Here's Bond in bed with a beautiful woman. You get it. Like we all get it. We all know what this is." And I think it works a lot better. And you feel a little bit like Roger Moore feels a little bit more comfortable with just being Bond rather than having to have this like cool moment to start off. So yeah. it's like yeah, it's a different approach, but I think it's one that works a lot better than what we've seen before. I think it's also tied to the fact that because Roger Moore played the saint before this, didn't he? I know that there was this thing about Roger Moore was actually asked to be Bond way earlier, but he was wrapped up in in TV shows playing the saint and everything. And so maybe there's an element of people kind of already knew what to expect with Roger Moore. As you say, he he just fits into the Bond persona very quickly. So there's no need for this big build-up. And I think it is linked to what you say. that We've, we've done that before now. Like, enough. Let's just get on with it. 
yeah, we just don't need to go through these motions again. And I'm glad they were self-aware enough of it. But, you know, just seeing Bond in bed like that, it, it does it. Um, but what does <laughs> what does kind of go against this is that Bond then puts on a robe, like this yellow robe, <laughs> that's got like JB mm. uh, on it. <laughs> and I was like, that's a bold choice for the very first thing you see Roger Moore's James Bond in, this yellow robe with his own initials on it. Well, hey, wouldn't you get your own uh, monogrammed dressing gown if you, you know, if you were an agent? I guess I probably would, but you're I don't weird. I'd go for that. Why color. would you do that? <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> I don't know. I th- oh, is the color you have an issue with? Yeah, it's more the color. I think the fact that it says JB on it to me just made me laugh. Like, oh, that's so silly. Like, <laughs> because of, uh, yeah, it's me, James Bond. You know the one. I got the JB on the robe. You know what I'm about. <laughs> Especially being a secret agent. Mind you, he is the one that everyone knows his name, so it's, you know, in in that regard, it doesn't really matter. But yeah, I don't know, I liked it. Yeah, it's fine, but it's just interesting because they put so much care into dressing Bond. <laughs> this is what we get. Especially for this film, yeah. I mean, who wore it better? George Lazenby with the Freddy shirt or Roger Moore in the yellow robe? I'm going to have to go to Lazenby, I think. you have to go Lazenby? It, okay. it was just so frilly. <laughs> it was very eye-catching. yeah. And yeah, it turns out that we're actually at Bond's house. Yeah. It is Bond's house, isn't it? Yeah, it's Bond's house. Yeah. We we finally see where he lives. What what do you think of this house? It's ugly. Well, it's not com- <laughs> it's not completely ugly. It's it's got that element of what we've said before with some of the things from the 60s where it's coming back into fashion. So to to people these days it might actually look good. And I think some of it looks really nice. But then as we like later go into the kitchen and stuff, you just think, Ugh. <laughs> why are the walls that color or why are the curtains like that? So it's it's definitely um, an interesting style that Bond has chosen. Kind of an eclectic mix. It's very wooden, right? From, from what I remember, it's a lot of wooden panels and stuff kind of everywhere. Yeah, in the, in the main rooms, yeah. And then in the kitchen, it's all over the place. Which is odd because it made me think... Because this place isn't very big either. It doesn't feel very big. So to me, it felt like we were in a boat. (laughs) Like we were just like on the underside of a quite fancy, nice looking boat because you just didn't get a good sense of of this. Like it's a set, obviously, right? But they didn't really do a good job of setting it as a home. Like compared to what we got with M on a Majesty's Secret Service, we get the uh, exterior shot and it's clearly a very big place. This is just like, no, we're just inside this house that's meant to be Bond's house and there's a load of wood on the walls. What can I say? Maybe Bond doesn't get paid enough. I I think he does all right. (laughs) Not enough for windows, apparently. No, not, not yet. Someday. So yeah, M is knocking at the door. It's like 5.40 in the morning. It's very early. So, uh... Bond goes to answer and the lady who was in his bed, she sneaks off to go hide. Um, and M, I, I kind of like, I kind of like the idea of M. I mean, this is the replacement, what we get here. This is a replacement for the typical M briefing scene. We don't have it in the MI6 offices. It's, it's going to be done at Bond's house instead. So it is nice to have M come to Bond for once in a bit of a different, uh, different location. But uh, he's here to inform him about what we'd just seen in the pre-tail sequence about those three agents that had just been killed all in like a span of 24 hours. Um, and they were all linked to Dr. Kananga in some way. 
who is the president of San Monique. And actually, I think we saw him in the UN bit right at the beginning. I think he was there. Um, so yeah, uh, whilst this is all going on, though, it's almost like it is a bit, it's a bit sitcom-y. We've said this in the past, but Bond is trying to keep um, M away from where he thinks the, the woman still is. So he's like ushering him into the kitchen. Would you like some coffee, sir? So they go into the kitchen and um, Bond makes M a coffee. And this is what I was saying. I, they show off, there's this big scene, well, not big scene, but this scene where they really focus on Bond using this uh, grinder and then the espresso machine all whilst M is looking completely flummoxed by this like contraption. What is this thing? Uh, <laughs> but I guess it's because, apart from maybe if you're in Italy itself, they weren't common outside, and and especially like just in people's homes. And yeah, as someone that I do like, I do like coffee. I like making coffee at home. I'm just thinking like, oh man, some of that equipment Bond is using. I bet that's like worth so much money today. <laughs> like that's some proper classic, like vintage. Uh, machinery there but that's just me being a bit of a coffee nerd so yeah Bond makes uh, Emma coffee and Money Money Penny comes in whilst they're in the kitchen so it's nice to see Money Penny as well and she actually catches the the woman from the bed hiding in the in the coat wardrobe no, some sort of wardrobe um, and yeah I think there's not really much else to this scene it really is just M popping up to tell Bond about the the mission. And we get a little bit of gadget because there is Money Penny and there is M, but there's no Q in this film, weirdly. I think it might be that the actor who played Q was busy. I don't think it was actually a choice not to have him because you know, they've got Money Penny and stuff. So um, they get M giving Bond his gadgets, uh, which is a watch, um, which has a very high-powered magnet on it. I thought he already had the watch, and then Bond explains it to M. Uh, no, because he had a digital watch at first, didn't he? Oh, right. And okay. Then he, and then he, uh, yeah, and then he gets his new one from from M, and does a little demonstration by flinging the teaspoon from M's cup across the room. Uh, I, I, we kind of got this before with M just being so unimpressed by Bond and just so grumpy, and <laughs> you get this again where he sees this little trick and he's just fuming. Behind the eyes, you can see it. Uh, yeah, and uh, so Bond's got his gadgets, he's got his briefing, he's told to go to uh, New York for, is that, because that's where Kananga was last seen, I think is the Strand. I think it's chasing, yeah, maybe, but I think it's chasing down the, where the agents were killed, because eventually he goes to San Monique and also New Orleans, so, and I believe that's just saying, like, these people were killed here. You should go there and, and see if you can find any clues. Oh, okay, yeah. So that that's that's where Bond is going to be sent off to. So Emma Money Penny leave. Bond finds the, the... Oh, and also you do find out that the woman who was in the bed was from a previous assignment that Bond was on. Something to do with, like, a Rome. Something to do in Rome, and, and uh, they're annoyed that they're missing one of their agents, and it's it's the lady. Oh, Bond, what is he like? Sort of thing. Um, and then we get... We get the watch in action as as Bond unzips the the lady's dress from behind using the magnet, and I think this might be, yeah, I guess this is because the first time we see Bond, this is probably like one of the very first Roger Moore quips of of his time as Bond with the whole uh, sheer magnetism, darling, as he's doing it, and there's be, there'll be many more of them to come. There's just like every scene has one of these sort of lines in it. 
He says darling a lot. He da- I film. wrote that down. Just darling, darling, darling. Everywhere. That's his favourite word. I didn't mind it, but I was like, I completely forgot about that because none of the other Bonds have. And then Roger Moore just drops it like it's going out of fashion because it probably is. Uh, but yeah, all the time. Like most scenes he's in, he calls someone darling. It's lovely. Yes, darling. So it's quite interesting about this scene, though, is... I mean, it's a bold choice to have it take place in Bond's house. I don't dislike that choice. I guess I don't really have any strong feelings about it either way. And I still do appreciate them trying to mix things up with the air money penny Q formula. Like, I'm definitely open to them doing stuff like that because, you know, we're on film number eight of the entire franchise. I do like how they get this stuff in. Although you mentioned about how Desmond, I can't remember his last name, but, but Q not being there, but apparently there was stuff with Money Penny's actress as well, where she was like asking for more money. And <laughs> that happened in penny. the last film, which is why she just shows up as a passport control for like two seconds. Oh. And apparently the same thing was still ongoing, where they just yeah there was a bit of a dispute going on so this one they agreed for her to show up for this one day because they didn't want to pay her the money and yeah it's it's all very odd so there's all these weird like again as you say q's not here and stuff but there's some odd casting stuff going on in the background that kind of probably fed into the decisions they're making with some of these scenes and they might not be deliberately trying to mix up the formula they might just be like this is all we can do because these actors are a pain <laughs> and won't make oh. things easy so we could have had a new money penny potentially if that hadn't have uh, gone through. Maybe I think they might have probably just cut her for a film, like what they did with Q, and then yeah. maybe try and recast. But it, I think it does help shape this. But I don't think too much about this scene. Like I think it is nice that they have the whole Rome affair thing, kind of implying that yeah, this is just Bond, and it's just you know he's an established agent. Like it's a very small kind of detail, but this isn't a reboot or anything like that. It's just Bond being Bond and it kind of ticks all the boxes that you kind of generally would see with Bond in this type of meeting. So it would have been nice if maybe they did it in the offices, but, you know, this works too. I don't have a a strong feeling either way. Yeah, I'm glad that they didn't do any more sort of nod and a wink to the audience like before with Lazenby. They, they, just, they just carry on. Nothing's changed. They should have done the same line where he looks at the camera and say, this this would have never happened to the other fella, but I mean the other fella, not that fella. <laughs> um, I'm glad you're not the director of the Bond films, Tom. No. I would have made a couple of changes. Including no diamonds are forever at all. Yeah. Yeah. Skip that one. So this all leads to Bond now has his assignment. He's going to New York to investigate the death of these agents. And we cut to... A plane showing him leaving. And over the top of this, we have footage of a mysterious woman who's using tarot cards and gives a reading. And I don't have everything that she said, but it was generally bad vibes, I guess. I think the only line I've got is like, he brings violence and destruction and and things like that. It's all basically tying into Bond arriving and what this all kind of means. But yeah, the only thing I got was violence and destruction. Like, I couldn't tell you anything else she says. No, I can't remember either. I wrote down exactly the same words. I, it was kind of, I, I liked the the visual element of doing it over the top, interesting way. I think we, there was another scene in the previous film where we talked about they were trying more things visually. Uh, I guess this is sort of another example of that. I did notice on the... <laughs> 
on the tarot cards, it's never really explained, but they do have 007 on the back, which is cool, but they that shouldn't be on there. <laughs> like, <laughs> how did how this does she happen? Know? How, how does Bond have his own line of tarot cards? I don't know. Uh, yeah, and then this leads to Bond arriving at the airport, which, you know, it's nice to see Bond back at an airport. I feel like we haven't haven't done this in a while. It used to yeah. be such a staple. They're going back to basics with this one. Yeah, and might I say, he's looking very dapper. So one of the things with this, you said that earlier, like, emphasis on the clothes. It's always been an emphasis on the Bond films is the clothing. It's got to look good. I think this one goes more more than ever. <laughs> more than ever. Because... He always looks so perfectly, like, preen and proper. This first outfit where he's this coat, I'm like, he looks really good there. And and it's something that Sean, I think, could not have pulled off, that sort of outfit. So it, it, they're, they're definitely catering now to a different actor playing Bond. Yeah, it's not quite as stylish in the same way that George Lazenby had, where I think that was very trying to be fashionable. But this is more just, like, very smart, yeah. And is this where he's wearing the gloves as well? Yeah, yeah. Like I like long, the gloves. I'm a big fan coat. of those. Yeah. Oh, nice. Good Very trailer. prim and proper, darling. Mm-hmm. So Bond's at the airport. And, you know, what we did before with these older scenes is how there was some sort of method of Bond knowing who was who and they would kind of have to explain it to see who would meet up as. But this time they kind of have that in there, but they simplify it. It's just Bond has, uh, like... Like a, like a number plate, I suppose, uh, on his luggage, and then he finds a taxi with the same one, and he gets in. Simple. And it's nice because it creates that whole world of, oh, this is the spy world, and them having meeting up and stuff like that, but without having to have the the explanation and stuff. It was, it was a neat little touch. Yeah. I, 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 did, I, I do like the whole code word stuff that we had. I mean, uh, you need a lighter or, or a lighter's better from, from Russia of Love. That is kind of nice, but I guess this does this does deliver it more efficiently as a film. Yeah, I like it too. It's just nice when they're keeping these elements, but they find a nice smart way to streamline it just to kind of get things going. Yeah. So Bond finds his car and gets in, starts being driven uh, to... Well, we don't, well, we don't know where, where yet, but he's, uh, it turns out that the guy who's driving him is was working for the CIA because Felix... Rings him on the car telephone, which apparently is a thing. Um, and yeah, Bond's talking to Felix and just kind of uh, lets him know about, I think, uh, I think Kananga, they're definitely, I'm not getting this wrong, right? They do know about Kananga right now. They're not, I'm not jumping, jumping the gun. That's who they're watching, yeah. They're watching him, yeah, because he's at the embassy. So basically Bond's going to go meet up with Felix. But uh, all whilst this is happening, you can tell that they're being watched um, by other cars and everything. And you slowly realise that there are other, I was going to say cars, but I think the more accurate term is pimpmobiles. <laughs> <laughs> Calling uh, to Felix, apparently. Yeah, all these pimpmobiles that are following them. Uh, and then there's this there's this big man in a white pimpmobile that is pulling up to the side of them. And we see him use this kind of, nifty little wing mirror dart gun gadget he's got by lining up alongside the car and shooting the driver in Bond's car. Uh, Charlie, isn't it? Charlie? Charlie? <laughs> <laughs> i got to say, is it just just um, as an aside, I'm 
I'm not sure about uh, Roger Moore's acting in a lot of this film. And I do think it's it seems like this where it's just I don't know the way he's the way he says that and the way he reacts it just doesn't quite feel right to me. But I think I think Roger Moore said himself that he's he never really considered himself a very good actor. So I, I don't feel too bad in saying that. Um, but yeah, the driver gets shot, so the car starts to go out of control because uh, I think his foot's still on the pedal. So Bond has to um, like steer through loads of traffic on this on this uh, very busy New York road. It's um, it's a scene. I wouldn't say it's a very interesting or a very exciting scene. It's just sort of swerving around cars for a little bit. Yeah, that's kind of it. And then they eventually crash and get loads of hubbub and loads of cops and stuff around them. I think for like the first thing that Bond does in this film, it's um, it's not it's not great to be honest with you. But I suppose we're very early on, so it doesn't really need to be. I think. Yeah, while we're here, I kind of hinted at this before, but I think it's worth reiterating. This film, in so many ways, is just Doctor No. Like, storyline-wise, and in terms of the way a lot of this stuff plays out, it's it's just Doctor No. Mm. Where the opening is MI6 agents being killed elsewhere, and then Bond sent to investigate, and then Bond goes to the airport, and we actually see him at the airport, and he has the secret code, and then he gets into a car, but, oh no, something goes wrong! And he's being watched, and a lot of this film is him being watched and about this kind of presence of someone. Now, you know, to be to be fair, Doctor No, they keep him hidden, and it's more about his presence, and then they reveal him, where this one doesn't kind of do things in that way, but so much of this story is just Doctor No again. And it feels like some of the feel of this film as well feels a little bit like Doctor No. So just like at the start of Doctor No, where we have Bond at the airport and something goes wrong with his car and there's a bit of a chase and it's kind of whatever. We we kind of see this again where it's like, yeah, Roger Moore's in a car and the driver is shot and there's a bit of a, a hubbub. <laughs> I can't remember what you said. <laughs> hubbub, yeah. Hubbub uh, happens and it's kind of whatever. And a, a lot of this film kind of plays out this way in this more basic kind of Bond story, but also just so much like Dr. No. It's kind of really shocking that after diamonds are forever we get a film like this that feels so much like that first film and i totally agree i totally agree with that and i think that's probably why it does have this this smaller sense of scale to me um this film in general but i would argue that they're in no position to be able to do that again like we're we're eight films in we're over 10 years after the first film they've made so much money budget must be 10 tenfold what the first film was of dr no I think that it should have been more like it should have had more for, for this for this film. And I, I think overall, there's kind of a bit of a lack of of money <laughs> in this potentially. I don't know. I don't know if it's money or not, but it, it doesn't feel like it, it um, is in a place to to be this sort of low key when it's the eighth film in the in the franchise. Yeah, there's a lot of stunt. There are stunts and set pieces here, but it feels like they put all their money into like one or two and still needed a load of stuff to happen in between. So we get stuff like this, where it's just kind of like throwaway. Yeah, it, it does what it needs to do, but it's not very interesting. Like this film is kind of littered with that. But again, it does go big in certain areas, but arguably not as big as the other films. It's just, yeah, we, we get these smaller ones, which sometimes I quite like. But it does kind of give this weird sense of the film being a, a bit more forgettable 
than you would kind of imagine for something like this film where it has this such strong theming with the voodoo and the the black exploitation and Roger Moore being the first you know his first film and stuff this should be a more memorable film but thanks to kind of scenes like this it's actually quite forgettable and yeah. I think in two months time I will probably struggle to remember much about this film I'm already there don't worry <laughs> oh no, no well, that's a bummer <laughs> No, not not quite there, but yeah, I, I do agree. I think uh, it is going to be it's going to be well. We'll get to the rating, the ranking at the end. Yeah, so this will lead to the the hubbub, as you say, and Felix. We see Felix and his CIA kind of crew watching someone come out of a limo, which is uh, Kananga uh, in the end. And I think at this point is where. <laughs> Like, we get a lot of shots in this film of Felix on the phone to Bond. Mm. And they were really, really proud of the fact that they had car phones. I don't know if they were real, but there are so many times in this film where a scene plays out by somebody calling something on their car phone. <laughs> yeah, or some little gadget that acts as a, as a receiver. Or yeah. yeah, you're right. Yeah, so we've already had it when he got into the car, and then he crashes, and then they just call each other up like... <laughs> Two, two teenage girls just gossiping. No, you hang up. No, you hang up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think at this point is where Felix is like, get me a, a white pimp mobile. So we weren't joking about that. That straight up is in the film. They use the line pimp mobile and it's a bit... I mean, it made me laugh, so I don't mind, but it's like, oh, okay, that's, all right, that's a choice. Yeah. I mean, you, like you say earlier, the, the, this is definitely of that era of the black exploitation films. It, I think they must have been... Well, say in 1973, this would have been just as they are kind of really gaining in popularity. So they're just it's like what you see later on when they they do science fiction because of Star Wars. It's they just they just follow what's what's the in thing and black exploitation films and pimpmobiles and calling people honkies. Like that's that was it. So that's what you're going to get in a Bond film. Yeah, I mean, I guess if we want to get into it, like you know, this film very heavily has that stuff in. Now, I'm not qualified enough to say what it means culturally and stuff like i'm not gonna even try that but for me i just kind of just didn't think about it that much like it is quite strong and in there and yeah i i would prefer if they didn't say honky and pimpmobile and stuff like that that stuff does come across as very silly uh but yeah for me like i'm not qualified to talk about this so i'm just here to talk about this as a bond film and see it from that perspective and in terms of the cultural stuff like yeah that's that's not me, and I'm assuming that's not you, Joe. <laughs> no, no, I do like, we'll get on later, I do like the voodoo stuff, but but that's sort of separate, yeah. Uh, so this all leads to Felix is viewing Dr, or watching Dr. Kananga, and he goes inside uh, a building and goes into an office, and we find out that Felix is listening in, like that office is bugged. But it turns out that Dr. Kananga and the group of people that he's with are aware of that fact, so he says, oh, I want to uh, describe a letter and, and send a letter to someone uh, about our great nation and starts talking and then starts playing a tape, which then starts playing audio, which continues on from him, basically tricking Felix and the CIA agents to think that he's still inside that room while him and everyone else goes through a, a secret entrance at the back. And this, I guess this is our first kind of look at this operation that Dr. Kananga has and... I really like how built up this system is. Like we see all this kind of network 
and we don't see like a ton you know it's not complicated or anything but it's really cool to see a villain like even before you kind of speaking properly really just like calmly just has these protocols and things like that that he does in order to get around stuff like it's all very planned or very deliberate and we kind of get that throughout of the film but i i thought that was something that really helped build him as a villain how he has this network and how we get to see that work yeah yeah that's true more more of that connection to dr no like you say oh yeah definitely like that's yeah we'll definitely get there but this one this film arguably has a stronger kind of presence or like setting up his network and the presence around him um, around him uh but yeah it is very much like dr no just kind of a different version of it and while all this is going on uh bond has been told by felix where the car that was registered to i'm assuming it's the white car that attacked him and he somehow got the number plate for it i don't i don't really know Either way, Felix is like, yep, this is where the car is registered, and that's a voodoo shop. Mm-hmm. And we get yeah, Bond. Old coat. Yeah. yeah. We get Bond to have a little browse of the voodoo <laughs> shop. <laughs> they do they do use that element of Bond out of his element quite well in this film, where you know he goes to Harlem and places like that, and everyone's staring at him, and he's going into this little voodoo shop and picking up these little trinkets of skulls and what and looking perplexed. And you could just, there, there is humor in that of itself of just Bond being very uncomfortable in the places. Yeah. He stands out like so badly. And yeah, I think they did it the right way of just kind of addressing it and poking it like people later on. So like Bond, yeah, you're, you stand out mate. Like yeah, <laughs> what your whole look and your whole vibe, you definitely stand out. So I, I really enjoyed that of Bond being in such a different kind of world and just looking like and i think roger moore pulls it off just the way he looks and dress and holds himself like there is this kind of confidence about him even though he is kind of out of his depth with so much stuff like i don't know if sean connery could have really pulled that off but roger moore kind of looking all like stone-faced walking around like as you say it's silly and because it's roger moore like it works like i was kind of surprised how much of the comedy of roger moore films comes from him actually playing stuff straight Mm. like he definitely makes jokes but i think it's more like roger moore a lot of the times is more like laughing at the straight man for not kind of going along with the joke if you know what i mean yeah 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 Whereas like the snooty businessman just kind of half reacting and stuff and just being in this absurd situations he finds himself in so and i actually found myself quite enjoying that element uh in general with this film and I, I'm assuming that it's going to be the same in the other ones. But yeah, I think that type of comedy where it's not in your face, but that stuff actually worked for me quite a bit. So Bond enters the occult voodoo shop and has a little look around. It's very small. I think he's the only one in there. Um, and there's a lady behind the till. Uh, and he does eventually spot the guy. Well, I don't think he would have known it was the guy. And maybe he did spot him. But one of the the guy who, who killed Charlie, the driver, um, the big, the big bloke. <laughs> he walks in and goes through this back, back curtain area. Is the big fella? Sorry, is that Whisper? Whisper, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, Bond spots him walking through. So he distracts the lady by telling her to go gift wrap some snake thing. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. He just picks up a fake snake. He's like, I want this. I want it wrapped. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and while she's off in the back, then he sneaks through. Um, and I don't, he doesn't really get very far. He sort of gets back into this, yeah, in this back area where all these cars are parked. 
and before he really does much, some people walk out. So I think he hides behind a car in the back area. I don't know if you actually get to see who these people are. Is it? Is it? Um, is it the same people we saw in the embassy? Yeah, yeah. So basically, they've gone through. So in the embassy, they had a wardrobe that they pushed to the side, and then they all kind of calmly walked down, and right. that passageway led to the foodoo shop. So it is Doctor Kananka and um, his group of people that he has with him. Right, because they they had that they put on their change of clothes, didn't they? They put on all their out of their embassy clothes and into their like nice white, big white tuxes or whatever it was. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, they they come out um and get into a car and drive off. So. Bond follows him. That's it. It's, it's not really much happens in this place. It's just he spots some people leave. So he he gets out and gets into a taxi and does the old sort of follow that car thing. Um, and all whilst this is happening, I will say, we haven't really spoke about the music yet in this film. Um, I'm, I'm sort of in a bit of two minds about the music. I think some parts of the soundtrack of this film I really like and other things I don't or there just is no soundtrack, <laughs> as we'll discuss later. Um but it's in scenes like this where you hear this sort of very 70s version of the Bond theme. It has that funkiness to it, but it's not, it's also not like too in your face. It's quite subdued. And I think it's a really good track to go for these sort of things where it's not, it's not the big action scene, but it's just actual sort of sleuthing, you know, a bit of actual spy work. And um, yeah, it's really good. Oh, the, yeah, the music's a very interesting one because. You know, I, I try and talk about the music, but John Barry didn't do this score. No. Uh, he was busy elsewhere on other projects, so they got a man called George Martin in instead, and he did the score. And you could definitely tell it's not a John Barry one, but I think he does a really good job kind of having a different style and one that kind of matches the film and Roger Moore. So it's not quite as bombastic or it doesn't go quite as big or anything like that. The one thing I will say about the soundtrack I don't really like is how... This is a film that is obsessed with its main theme, Live and Let Die, and it kind of uses it as much as Goldfinger did. Mm. And it's sometimes I really like it, and sometimes I really appreciate having it in, but we hear like the Bond theme a lot, and we also hear Live and Let Die a lot, and it doesn't really give any of the other tracks a chance to kind of feature too much like it's all the other tracks kind of get a little bit lost because you're playing these just themes and it might be because George Money hadn't done it before and they wanted to play a little bit safe and it just means you get like all these ones that just yeah I would have liked it if they didn't play Live and Let Die as much as they did which is weird because I do love when they play the theme as part of the soundtrack and over the as part of the score it's just like apparently this is my limit apparently this is my limit in terms of how much i can hear it like i feel like even with goldfinger they put a lot more effort into remixing it so you can clearly hear it was goldfinger but it also was different this one i don't think they quite put in as much effort and it gets a little bit grating towards the end that you just keep hearing this song that you just have already heard a ton of times before yeah that i did notice that especially i think it's i think it's during the speedboat chases later on they use it and and then by that point i was like yeah i'm the fact that I recognise that I'm hearing this multiple times now, that's a bad sign. Yeah, it's, it's just way too much. And I think it just come from... It's a safer soundtrack. But again, the stuff that they do in there is pretty good. It's just they weren't very smart with those choices. So now we have the setup of Bond is in a taxi following Dr. Kanganga in his car. And we actually see that there's a third person. So somebody else in a in a blue car, I think, is watching Bond... 
And as the Bond theme is playing, we actually have this free car following set up, which we haven't had before, but it's it's really cool. <laughs> it's really cool to see one car being followed by someone else and being followed by someone else. And it goes back to, I mean, we finally, we, you know, we do find out who's following Bond, of course, but it kind of goes into this theme that we have throughout the film of like everyone's following everyone and everyone's in on it. We see a lot of people on the radio and stuff like that talking to each other and reporting one where bond is and we kind of see that here uh and it's it's really cool and it's just cool to see this little it's, it's, there's not much to it like it's not an action scene but it's just a nice setup for a spy film what someone following someone following someone else even the shoe shiner <laughs> is in on it especially you can't trust the shoe, anyone shoe shiner <laughs> yeah just there he is doing his little shoe shining, and then oh, what's that in his little box? It's another phone. <laughs> Phones everywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's where we get you are honky on your tail and stuff. Like, okay, but yeah, but yeah, I like that stuff. Like how we see all this communication, everyone kind of talking to each other. It's cool. Uh, and this all leads to eventually the taxi with Kananga in uh, gets to fill of song. <laughs> it's it's written fillet. And I want to say fillet, like chicken fillet. <laughs> well, here's the thing with this. So, yeah, it fi- fillet of soul. But then that word fillet, you can say you can say fillet, you can say fillet. And I think they even say, um, they say another way in the film. I'm like, well, what the hell? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> I, yeah, I have no idea. It's such an important part of the film. But I think fillet, I guess, is good. Enough. It probably isn't fillet. Probably not. That sounds a bit British. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably what Roger Moore would say, uh, fillet, but fillet of soul. Uh, yeah, they get to fillet of soul, which is the same. It's a chain, basically, and they do eventually establish this as a chain. But this is the same place we saw in New Orleans before. But now we're seeing a chain or another version of this uh, bar restaurant place, but this time in New York. Mm-hmm. And this is another case of Bond being completely out of his elements and standing out because he steps in. And everyone just turns around and stares at him quite blatantly. And it did make me laugh because of how nonchalant he is with this stuff. Like, I like to think that he has zero self-awareness of all this. And it's just like, <laughs> yeah, whatever. I'm going to go in, see what's up. He takes it in his stride. I almost expected like a record scratch when he walks in, like that that level of cliche when uh, everyone turns around and looks at him. But yeah, yeah Roger Moore, is, he just... Um, he has that, like you said earlier, he has that sort of style where you can just, he just goes with it and, and there's a humour in him just almost not reacting to things. So, And this is when we get a controversial moment, I believe, because Bond goes and sits in a booth and this is where he orders a, a bourbon. Uh, he gets yeah. asked his drink, there's no shaken, not stirred vodka martini, instead he just has a, a bourbon whiskey. Yeah. More, more of a. I don't know. I don't think by this point he we've seen him smoke, but he doesn't smoke cigarettes. He, he smokes cigars. He doesn't drink martinis. He drinks bourbon. Uh, more, more differences they're setting out from Sean. This doesn't really bother me at all, to be honest. But it is one that when I think about it, it's just silly. Like you could have got gotten a lot out of having Roger Moore as Bond say shaken and not stirred. So. I don't really care that they change the drink too much, but they, they kind of miss something. Like, it would have just been nice to be like, they are trying to establish him as Bond. It would have just been nice to have him say the line. 
I mean, it probably would have been funny considering the context of where he is to have him order a Fogger Martini <laughs> <laughs> and specify how he wants it. Like that probably would have been quite funny. Uh, so maybe they didn't do that just to take him a little bit more seriously. But yeah, it would have been nice. Just take the box. But again, it, it didn't bother me too much. It's just it probably would have been smarter to have him just order the normal drink. Yeah, you don't you don't really gain much by having him have his own styles and and preferences. Maybe back when this came out, it was more of a, a worry. But they've they've done it. But they've they've done it once before at this point now. So having a new actor, yeah, I, I think it doesn't last too long. I don't know how long Bond has bourbon form. Pretty sure he has a. Uh, martini in the next film or if not the next one so it was a bit of a strange choice it's odd because it's not the only time as well there is another scene where he also orders a bourbon so there was almost like this odd commitment to it but it's it's so minor you know obviously i could see why people wouldn't like it but you know it's it's just such a minor thing for me Mm. so bond is there sitting at his little booth and then he is asking the waiter, like, I'm here to get information. Look at this money. And halfway through the sentence, <laughs> the wall spins. And he in his booth is spun around and taken into a completely different room. I want to say there are other scenes in this, which always make me laugh, where people just get completely cut off. Like they're trying to say something, especially with this, where Bond's trying, or Roger Moore's trying to act all cool. Yeah. Be like, hey, here's some money. I'm going to get information just for the guy to be completely nonplussed where he gets spun off. You know, they, <laughs> they do set up the whole Bond is not in control and is a fish out of water stuff really well here with all these little touches and everyone knows what's going on but him. Uh, and I, it's really cool. Yeah, especially because the, the, the waiter takes the money and then drinks his drink as wanders off. <laughs> yeah, just not <laughs> impressed in the slightest. Like, M would probably get on quite well with these people. <laughs> like, he is annoying, isn't he? He really, yeah. Did you, he, was in, he was in the corner. Did you not spot him? Oh, I, I didn't. I should have done. At least a egg there for you. Yeah. yeah. And on the other side of this room, it's quite a, a fancy, nice looking room, I suppose. Uh, and there's just three guys and one of them has a gun. And he's basically, relax, Mr. Big is going to take care of you in a minute, they say. Is this the first time we hear Mr. Big's name? I think so, yeah. Yeah, because this film's a little bit confused, because basically during this film we have two kind of people in charge here. We have the the president, I believe, uh, Dr. Kananga of, of San Monique, and then we also have this guy, I want to say drug lord, right? Mr. Big, who's kind of mm. in charge of all these places and is supposed to be the owner of these restaurants and it's all part of his criminal organization. Uh, but the film kind of gets a little bit confused with jumping between the two and there's a reason for that. But it's like, you kind of, I didn't really buy into the this at all and didn't really care about Mr. Big because I think we only see him maybe like twice before the reveal happens. That's a good point. It's something that I hadn't really considered, but obviously we know where this this plot element goes. I don't. So I really didn't care too much about Mr. Big. It, I don't really think he's he's in the film that much, as you say. It's, it's mentioned a few times, but I don't know if you weren't to know where this story goes, it must be a bit must be a bit crap <laughs> this, this whole element of these two characters because it just doesn't really feel very fleshed out well that's what i had because like i said i didn't remember anything about this film at all really 
And that's what I had with Mr. Big, where you get a lot of Dr. Kananga, and that's cool, and I, and I like those scenes. But Mr. Big is like twice, and I just... I, I know why they did it, and I, I think it still kind of has a point. It's just when it, whenever anyone mes- mentions Mr. Big in this film, I'm just like, I don't really have any reference for this guy or really care. But it goes somewhere. So, you know, it goes somewhere. It's just... It's just odd. It's odd whenever anyone mentions the name. Mm-hmm. So Bond has been captured, but they're not holding him down or anything. And Bond being classic Bond, he just kind of non He sees a woman who's attractive. <laughs> so just ignoring everyone, just beelines it straight to her. And then starts putting the moves on her. And it's like, and this is when we get the line, my name's Bond, James Bond. And this is more just like almost comedy as well of Bond just being so unaware that, yeah, he's surrounded and these guys have a gun. But he's like, ah, attractive woman. Off I go. Hello, it's me, James <laughs> Bond. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Solitaire, I forgot her name. Solitaire is the, the tarot, tarot card reader. That's who we saw earlier on in the little transition with the, the plane. Um, she's... She ends up being the Bond girl of the film, obviously. I gotta say, right off the bat, with these scenes between them, between Roger Moore and and it's Jane Seymour is the actress's name. Um, I got very kind of creepy vibes between these two characters. I I did not like these two together, um, and I, even from this very early bit. I think it, it does tie into that bit. You were saying how Bond just immediately goes over to her and starts starts you know doing all the charming and everything, but and that just seems a little bit I don't know a little bit greasy. Um, but also the fact that she she looks really young, and we we do later hear that she 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 must be quite young um, in in the film in some dialogue. So I, I don't know we the relationship between these two. I mean, Moore was not that old, not yet anyway, but it does feel a little bit um, inappropriate, these two together, for me. I don't know why, but but that's just a feeling I got watching it. I definitely got that feeling later on, not quite straight away, but later on with a certain plot element that gets introduced, then it makes it like, this is not great. I think her as an actress is terrible. I think she's really bad. Mm. And a lot of this film is her being like the damsel in distress, just straight up. And she's bad at it and doesn't really bring anything to that role. And her fake, like, oh, no. Like, well, first of all, she's written badly because she is just a damsel in distress where Kananga kind of owns her. And all that really happens with Bond is Bond doesn't really set her free. It's kind of like Bond owns her instead. <laughs> it's yeah, it's more of a transfer. And... It's and she doesn't sell it, you know. She's her on-screen presence is terrible. Her fate, her acting in terms of like, oh no, which is a lot of this film. Like fifty percent is her just being like, oh no, <laughs> and she's bad, just bad. Like it didn't annoy me. Not a lot of this stuff in this film really did annoy me that much. Uh, I think overall the experience of this film is very much like middle of the road, both like good and bad. Uh, no real peaks, but no real kind of dive there. And she kind of like sums it up quite nicely. Like, not very good, but whatever. Like, I guess it's a Bond girl. Take the box. Move on. Yeah. But as part of the cards that she's reading, she says that Bond won't succeed, which is weird because 
he does. <laughs> so I guess right, right, yeah. Why is that so called power? I, I guess she was lying, but because she is meant to like just get out of the way. She is meant to have this actual powers. Like she actually can see the future in these cards, and that's kind of a big part of the film. Yeah. Uh, because then straight away, uh, they uh, they ask her, "Is he armed?" She checks the card and then just nods at them. <laughs> so it's like, okay, nice. And then a man with a hook for a hand shows up, who's our big, powerful city goon for the film. Need to come up with a better the the henchman of the film, basically. Mm. And his whole thing is that he's got a hook for a hand. Does he have a name? I don't think I ever got his name. His name is Tihi. Tihi. Tihi, yeah. That's probably why I missed it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't you look at a man like that and you just think, Tihi. Yeah, it's Tihi. Yeah, everyone knows him. But uh, yeah, it's this guy who smiles all the time and laughs a lot as well. And just, uh, yeah, he takes Bond's gun and uses his hook to bend it and then gives it back and then just like laughs as he's walking off. Everyone laughs a lot in this film. That's one thing to point out. So much oh, laughter. Definitely. And then um, Bond just kind of calmly just bins his gun up. <laughs> it's another thing. Like so many of these little comedy moments with Bond being the straight man and just being nonchalant. Oh, they all work for me. Maybe we'll find that that we don't. But it was really funny to have this like crazy person with a hook for a hand just bend his gun and Bond just like, well, I guess I'll throw this in the bin. Don't worry. <laughs> can't litter. <laughs> no, no. I mean, he's a gentleman. Um <laughs> Although I will say, with this Tihi character, and and it's fitting into the template of of the the main villain henchman having some sort of trope, you know, odd job of the hat. Um, who's the guy's name from You Only Live Twice? What was his name? Hands. Hands. Hands didn't yeah. have anything, but good old hands. Maybe he just Love had hands. strong hands. Um, and the, Tihi has the metal uh, the claw, and it just looks bad. I'm sorry, it's not it's not a difficult thing to get right, but you can tell where his arm is, and he has like an abnormally long arm, and it it, it bends at weird angles, and I know that it's meant to be like, you know, of its time, it would be like a metal prosthetic thing, but you can tell it, it, it looks like a prop, <laughs> it doesn't look real in in this universe. And that really bugged me. It's like, could you not have just made it like it doesn't bend awkwardly at the at the wrist where he's clearly holding on to the, the hook thing underneath the sleeve? Just uh, little things. Come on. It. I didn't really notice that too much, but you're not wrong. Now that I think about it, you're not wrong. There is times where like the sleeve around it is just clearly completely off. Yeah. I just it, Maybe it's one of those things where once I noticed it, I, I kept on kind of fixating on it it probably wasn't as big of an issue that i'm making out to be but it was just constantly annoying me every time he was on screen like sort out your wrist sort out your hook man (laughs) tuck it in tuck it in put it up a bit further you're totally right although overall i I ended up quite liking tee i think having someone smile like that it's not a crazy original kind of trope right we you have crazy people but he did kind of pull it off, and whenever he was on screen, you did notice him because there's just this giant man with a hook with a hand smiling in the corner, having a great time. Mm. Uh, so I did, I did love Tihi. I don't think he's going to go down as a, mem- a super memorable kind of henchman, but you know, I liked it. 
So Bond then gets another tarot reading from uh, Solitaire where he gets the full card. I don't think they really explain what that means, but I think it's just another joke, really, I suppose. Yeah. And then somebody comes into the room, which is Mr. Big. I don't think they say it's Mr. Big because I didn't even write that down. And it's just like, hey, take this honky and, and waste him. <laughs> so, all right. And Bond then takes another card and it's the lover's card, kind of hinting that something's going to happen here between Bond and uh, Solitaire. Although, actually, Bond taking the full card, do you think it's because of Mr. Big? Oh, because Mr. Big comes out shortly after. he's fooling him. Ah. Wow. See, I think you, you're you putting more thought into this film than the writers. <laughs> Maybe. I need to rewatch, but just reading it in my notes, it's like they definitely established this thing of the cards are correct. Like, by the way, everyone, voodoo's real. Don't worry about it. <laughs> the cards are always correct. And the full card must have tied into something. Maybe there's something I missed in my notes, but uh, that might be the reason. That might be some really nice foreshadowing there, but... I only notice it now that I'm reading my notes, which might be wrong. Mm. I, I, yeah, no, let's, let's go with that. Yeah, I think so. So Bond is then taken away where he's still talking to Solitaire and nobody else being like, oh, I shan't be long, darling. Just need to take care of this. Darling, darling. Yeah, she looks, she looks uh, with the lover's card revealed, you can tell like that's worrying her. <laughs> she looks quite shocked by that. And confused so it, and that, that lover's angle was yeah that that comes back a few times later on in the film so bond is taken out by the the henchmen a couple of them out to the back in this really really horrible looking part of new york i don't know like maybe i'm guessing new york in the 70s some areas of it just wasn't nice and like it looks like a bloody bomb site some of these places uh it's taken out back behind these buildings and kind of walking in front of the two two henchmen who are got a gun and he eventually deals with them in not a very uh, exciting way, but he he slams down a like a fire escape ladder or, or something like that on top of them uh, to knock them out. I think it's one of those things where with with Sean, big hairy Scottish man, <laughs> uh, he could he could sell the fight scenes a bit more with especially in this film where Roger Moore is dressed up. So as we've said, so preen and proper, like not a, not a, a bit of his dress, like uh, his outfit out of place, you know, it's all perfect. And then you get the scenes with him doing this. It just doesn't, doesn't sell for me. I think they def they don't keep up this angle of him being so kind of, I don't want to say pompous. That's not the right word, but so pristine. I think that does get a little bit lesser, not much so, but a little bit lesser later on. But in these sort of shots where he's got this nice coat and everything and then he's suddenly taking out these two guys, it just doesn't, I don't know, it didn't it didn't work for me, more fighting like that. Uh, but he does eventually, you know, he does knock him out. Um, and then just as he does that, he gets caught by another person, another man. It's the same man that was following in the car, the third car earlier on. And you think, oh, no, Bond's in trouble. But actually, no, he shows him his badge. It's, uh, it's the CIA. His name, I wrote it down. Harold Strutter, great mm. name. Harold Strutter who works for the CIA, um, who shows up and takes him to his car. Kind of, kind of tells him about uh, Mister Big and how only Mister Big could have this many sort of connections and and uh, eyes in the city. And in the car, there's like a little 
Felix. What do they call it? Well, I guess it's a Felix lighter because it was in the lighter slot. And it's a little radio. Another one of those car phone. Look at this thing. We're talking through the car. Um, Felix is, is talking to him and tells them about Dr. Kananga, who I think is heading back to San Monique now, back to the Caribbean. So that's where Bond needs to go. Uh, I think you're right about the Roger Moore stuff. But to be fair, they don't really have him fight many people. So I think they were at least smart enough to not focus on it. It's not like Jaws Lazenby where there's a ton of fights. I feel like maybe I'm misremembering, but I feel like with this one, he doesn't really get into that many fist fights. Like it just because it's just not that big part of a film for this one. They tone that down again, somewhat similar to Doctor No. There's just not that many. Uh, like in older Bond films, it would almost be like a you know a scene, a set piece where you know let's go back to the the classic sofa scene in You Only Live Twice, where it's very much here's the dude and here's Bond, and now they're going to have a fight in this room. They don't really do that that much here. There's there's a little bit of that, but it's mostly a lot of just like. And then Bond just fights a couple guys as like a smaller part of a bigger scene. There's not a lot of scenes where it's just Bond fist fighting people like they would have done with Sean Connery with, you know, Thunderball and, and things like that. So I think they were at least smart enough to to tone that stuff down with Roger. Yeah, that's true. And I will say this set is amazing. I don't know if it's a set or if it's a real street, but it's so like grim, as you say. Yeah. It is, there's just, it's destroyed and to see this completely destroyed street in New York, like, I've never been to New York or anything, I don't know a lot about it, but even outside of that, just seeing Bond in this location, it's another one where they just found a really amazing place to shoot, and I'm really glad that they did. Tiny part of the film, but it's just really cool to see. It gave me some uh, Skyfall flashbacks of when they go to that destroyed island, or the abandoned island. Oh, yeah. It's definitely not the, the flashy side. If you think of New York, you think of Times Square and Fifth Avenue. You're not getting any of that here. The closest you got was that aerial shot of the UN building. Yeah, and but it's it's great. I, I really like it, just in terms of visual variety and it's just looking cool on its own kind of merit. Mm. So this leads to Bond going, basically, to Saint-Monique. Although not before we cut to uh, a man... Having a grand old time. Oh, yeah. Uh, doing a performance for a, for a group of people. And it's the Baron. And he's got a white hat. He's got half his face white painted white. This white cape and things like that. And a loincloth. And he's just dancing around and generally being quite weird. And I think... <laughs> I mean, he has a presence. I, I use that word a lot, probably. But something they do with this character is that he kind of breaks the fourth wall by looking at the camera all the time. And I think he's the only character in the film that does that. Oh, that's an, int- uh, yeah, I did not, I did not pick up on that apart from the end of the film, but, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, he does it in this one. I don't know if he does it in any other scenes, but this scene starts with him laughing at the camera and, you know, the, the whole point of this, and they describe it here where it's like the Baron can't be killed or has come back from the dead or something, but he's, entertaining you folks tonight uh and i think they want to give him this kind of otherworldly feel and i think having him look at the camera is just one of the ways they did that some of the other ways was by having him be an absolute lunatic (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's another less subtle way but yeah they did have him look at the camera quite a bit it's good that they didn't do uh in all of this make him look at the camera and say this didn't happen to the other fella that would be a bit weird wouldn't it (laughs) 
Yeah, that probably would have made sense. Maybe, yeah, like the henchmen have their own little universe where they say this sort of stuff. This wouldn't have happened to Teehee. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we're now in Sam Monique with the Baron and Bond goes to a hotel, which, yay, Bond's in a hotel. We're ticking all the boxes here. We are. There's, I will, let's just get it out of the way now in terms of the box ticking. Now that we are moving on from Sean Connery, there is no more sweaty Sean. Oh. That's going to be a box always left un- unchecked. Damn. Sorry. Damn. <laughs> this podcast <laughs> is over. Uh, yeah, we do get some sweaty Roger, but it's not the same. It'll never no. be the same. And we have yeah Bond in the hotel, and he goes to check into his room, and we get a surprise where the guy's like, ah, oh, Mrs. Bond has already checked in for you and is expecting you. And he's all like, hmm... Oh. But that goes along with it, and this Mrs. Bond character has changed the room uh, for for him. And we get a little bit more of the performance and the Baron laughing and stuff like that before very quickly cutting to Bond in the room in another robe. This guy, this guy loves to wear a robe in this film. Just kind of Don't running. judge him. I, I'm not judging. <laughs> I'm just saying he wears a lot of robes. I think he wears another robe later on as well. I think you're right. He has a range of robes, but... So he goes along with it, basically. So the room has been changed by this Mrs. Bond, and he basically just goes to that room and has a little bath and sees the closet is full of women's clothing and stuff. So he's like, okay, that's that's fair enough. And he then gets out what I described as a gizmo and starts scanning the room. What is this gizmo? Yeah, I... So it's like a little radio. No, that's afterwards. The gizmo, I guess it's just to check for bugs, right? I mean, that's what he finds in the end, but they don't explain it. He just basically goes around the room with it and like the meter changes, but I don't know what that was really in relation to. Like I got what they were trying to do. Bond finds a bug and finds out that the room has been bugged. It's just like, it's quite poorly explained because it looks like such a generic gizmo and it... Yeah, it's quite poorly kind of laid well, out. If I'm remembering correctly, does it does it even do anything when it does it beep or something? Or I don't think it beeps. There is a light on it, but I don't know if that really synced up with when he found something. Mm, okay. Yeah, not not Q's best. <laughs> not no. his best work. He was like, "You got to watch." I also did this beeping thing sometimes. <laughs> You'll figure it out. I'm busy. That'll do. Yeah. Busy man, that cue. I'm not showing up for this film anyway. (laughs) They can't trace it back to me. But this is when it kind of struck me again. You know, we've already mentioned the Doctor No comparisons and we're probably going to say again, but this is another one where it felt straight from Doctor No. This is a very kind of slow scene of Bond checking the hotel room, just like he would have done in the older films. And he finds a bug, but it's all quite... I put reserved, which seems very odd considering how this all started with the Baron laughing at the camera. (laughs) Yeah. But if you take the voodoo stuff out of it, which is a big part of the film, this is arguably maybe even more reserved than Doctor No was. It's like, quite slow, I think. Yes, because it, it doesn't it doesn't have the um, I don't know. I think with Doctor No, what what Bond eventually does, you know, with the whole the hairs and all that sort of stuff, and linked to that, that's that seems just a little bit more. Um, classier i don't know i don't know the right word but in this one bond's just just waving his arm around in the room it's it's just a 
it's not the most visually interesting thing. Yeah, and I think comparing this to Doctor No again, like it has the similar sort of pacing, but this film is an hour and 20 minutes, I believe. Like it's two hours, which is the same length basically as Diamonds Are Forever, where Doctor No being the first one was a shorter film. Yeah. So Doctor No kind of got away with some of this stuff because it was shorter in the first one and things like that. This one is still trying to be that big two-hour Bond adventure, but it's paced in a lot of places and a lot of the action scenes and kind of these sort of smaller set pieces play out in the same way that that film did. And I wouldn't say it dragged, but it definitely felt slow and, and dragged in some places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. But this leads him to him finding a bug, which he doesn't touch. But he does call room service to order a bottle of champagne. Not quite sure why. Um, I think... I don't know if he genuinely just wanted a drink because he's an alcoholic. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> or if it was some sort of like, I'll have someone from room service show up just to kind of, as a, I don't know, a safety net or something, just to have somebody else come into this room now that I know it's bugged. I, I think I might be twisting things a bit but i think he probably just wanted a drink he just wanted that bollinger yeah while it was on like abroad and on the company card yeah let's get a bottle of champagne for me oh yeah uh but he then so he then uses this scrubber <laughs> i described it as a scrubber it's like a brush which this is the second gizmo which has a little antenna on it and then like turns it up i I don't. What's, what was he doing? So, I was equally as flummoxed by this gadget because it looks like some. It looks like a radio, right? Because it's a little antenna and it's pointing out the window. And so, I guess. I guess the point is that he was gonna maybe use it to speak, but then he realised the room is bugged. So then he uses it for Morse code instead. But to, to I who? don't know who he's sent exactly. I don't know who he's sending Morse code to, unless it's Felix. The only explanation I had for all this well, wasn't the Morse code thing, but that that might be what it is. Is that he was just kind of blocking this, like sending a, a signal through that to to block to it, jam it. Oh, maybe like he was jamming the signal with it because you hear this noise that starts playing, and I think it was jamming the signal, but he just doesn't. You just get no explanations. He just pulls out these really generic-looking weird things, and you're kind of just supposed to go with it. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of how they handle gadgets in this film, to be honest with you. Especially later on, there's a, there's a glaring one. But even in these scenes, I, I don't I, I don't mind some gadgets not being explained. I think we, we might have even praised that previously. But sometimes there does need to be something. <laughs> they can't just come out of nowhere constantly uh, in this scene, so... I shouldn't be watching a scene and then kind of overthinking what he's doing, which is what I, I was, because he's like, what is this? Who is he doing that to? Is that a message? Is he jamming? What What's going on? It just wasn't clear, which means that it wasn't very impressive or all that kind of interesting from that spy kind of angle. Like, this is another scene and where you could kind of just cut it almost, like just cut these two things and you would lose yeah. nothing, really. Just have Bond find the bug in the bed and that's all you needed. Like, he could have just found it by himself and just left it at that. Yeah. Totally. So after Bond has sorted out his little brush radio thing, uh, he was running a bath for himself earlier, so he gets into the bath. This is where we see, you know, they talk about the differences between Sean and, and Roger. 
very apparent here. Not a not a hair on his chest, that man. He nope. is smooth as a baby's bottom. Um, but yeah, he's shaving in, in the bath. And you see in the background behind him, coming through, a vent opens and out pops a snake that comes crawling down. So we're going to be saying it a lot with the whole Doctor, Doctor No stuff. It's kind of similar to the whole spider scene with that. Um, but this time it's a snake. Uh, but And you think that's going to go somewhere, but actually before anything does happen with that, the champagne arrives and the waiter who's bringing it is, it's the same guy we've seen a few times now. It's that henchman Whisper, um, who he really does whisper. <laughs> like mm. there's a little thing in this scene where he keeps talking and Bond's like, what, what? Can't hear you. Say that again. Uh, but yeah, he delivers his Bollinger. I don't think, I don't know why it's him because he doesn't really do anything. And this is meant to be distracting with the snake. Yeah, I would assume distracting, but yeah, because the whole point is that Whisper is not part of the staff. He's just there to... I or maybe he is part of the staff, but he is just part of uh, one of the goons. Yeah. Although then that does raise the question of, well, if you're going to send a snake after him, just poison the champagne for Christ's sake. <laughs> that is a good point. That is a very good point. But a snake, I suppose, is more... Well, it's meant to be more interesting. I don't know if the scene is very good, but uh, Bond takes the champagne and Whisper leaves. Like, there's nothing that happens there. He just goes... So Bond goes back into the bathroom and starts to comb his hair and get his hair all nice um, with uh, some like spray or whatever, some sort of alcohol-based spray. All, all uh, meanwhile, smoking a cigar. Uh, a and giant then... cigar. <laughs> oh yeah, only the best for Bond. Uh, and yeah, you see the snake is now like on the floor whilst all this is happening. You get nice foot shots of Bond. <laughs> right up close like oh there's james bond's feet i don't know if i really wanted to see that um and it's meant to be tense this scene i think you know given like oh no there's a poisonous snake presumably poisonous we've seen someone die from a snake bite already uh getting closer and closer to bond but to me it just isn't i don't know what it is about this scene i can't really really remember if there's any like good music to go along with it but it really just falls flat for me because yeah eventually bond spots the snake in a mirror in the bathroom mirror and uses this like can of whatever and his cigar to make a little flamethrower and just like toast the snake mm. <laughs> completely gets a barbecued snake um but yeah i just it it didn't for being something that was more intricate than the spider the tarantula scene in dr no i don't think it was anywhere near as effective i, I quite liked it I, I think this is the case of this film has all these smaller pieces and sometimes it's kind of a bit whatever. And I guess I could see that that way. But I think the fact that a snake on screen just looks really kind of unsettling in it in itself. Like you don't really have to do that much more. Just seeing this snake in a hotel room slowly going through and slowly approaching Bond. I thought it was effective. Like nothing, nothing crazy, but I think it worked and... You know, you had that interruption where Whisper shows up because initially you just think, is Bond going to be in this bath and have to wrestle a snake? <laughs> I would like that way shave. more. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, he has to jump out and put on a towel just to take the snake on. But no, they do have him come out and put on his robe and, and things like that. And yeah, it doesn't really go anywhere. But I don't know. I think seeing a snake in this hotel room slowly approach, it, it worked for me. Uh, as I've said, nothing in this film really massively peaks, uh, but still, I, I liked it. 
As Joe said, Bond made like a makeshift flamethrower and toast the snake. They didn't actually kill the snake, which is nice. Like if this was fundable, they would have totally killed that snake. Oh, uh, but it was—you could tell me. it was a fake, which is yeah. nice. Oh, those poor sharks. Yeah, R.I.P. Those sharks. But with the snake now taken care of, a, a little gun points out while well, a shadowy figure is on the door. So Bond kind of goes to the side of the door and then we see the little gun point out so bond using his giant cigar and i think this is the reason why it's so big just burns the hand Mm -hmm. (laughs) and i think it was so big just so you got that sense of oh it's being burned because if it was small like you couldn't do that with a cigarette could you it's not it would hurt no but it's not quite the same uh and pulls the person and throws them onto the bed and it turns out it's a woman uh, and this is our introduction to a character called Rosie, who has... This is all very odd, this one. So he's like, you're Mrs. Bond. And then Bond kind of sees what gun she has, which is a Smith & Western, which is like, this is CIA issue. So you must be part of the the CIA. And it turns out that she worked with one of the agents who was killed in the intro. So she was part of the CIA, but was working with this MI6 agent. And basically, she's here to assist Bond and kind of lead Bond to where this other agent was killed, basically, and kind of give him that info. Mm. Uh, And after that that kind of explanation and stuff, she goes into the bathroom and screams because she sees a snake. And her screaming is something that happens quite a bit. So I guess strap in for that, I'm afraid. <sighs> yep. Uh, but we do get a lot of one-liners from Bond. And th- this one, this one's so silly, like so unnecessary. Like they basically had to come up with a line for Bond to say about there being a snake in there. And, you know, I think there's quite a lot of ways you could have gone with the hissing sound or slivering or something. There's quite a lot of ways, but instead you instead have Bond say, oh, I should have told you, you should never go in there without a mongoose. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's a zinger there. It's such a long way to go. Like, I get it. It makes sense. But it's just like, is that... Really? We haven't had any snakes before. And the Bond writers was like, we need something with a snake. Ah, mongoose. Okay. Yeah. Not all of uh, not all of Roger's uh, one-liners are, are, <laughs> are up there, unfortunately. I, I like pretty much all of them, though. Not for the same reason as, like, shocking, positively shocking. But he just kind of delivers them with... And, you know, he believes in them. And I can appreciate that. <laughs> uh, and if even if they're bad, they never really make me groan. Or if they did, it was kind of in a good way. Like, maybe it was just because it was Roger Moore that I was able to just kind of shut off my mind a bit and enjoy just these silly kind of lines. There's so many of them. I just got into the rhythm and just they usually made me laugh because they're just daft. What is going on? This is like topsy-turvy because I, I didn't. And, oh no and you did yeah it's like our roles are being reversed here uh, yeah that's not good mm. uh, but speaking of not good uh rosie then starts moaning and getting all upset where she's like i'm useless i can't help you so bond takes this opportunity to try and charm and seduce her which she then oh, this doesn't really play out too well but she then says uh felix warned me about this if all else fails i'll use the cyanide pills which I guess is kind of funny with how harsh it is, but at the same time, it's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> uh, 
yeah. and then this leads to her saying i'm gonna go into my room i got separate beds and she screams again and we see this black hat with these like white feathers which have blood on them which is all like oh it's a warning and someone's coming to get me of which she then just flips and says don't leave me alone tonight james and falls into his arms and i think it's implied that they do sleep together and then that's rosie uh I guess the best thing I can say about Rosie is that she's not in the film long. Yeah. Like, if she was the main Bond girl, like, oh boy. But but they kind of has been doing this for a little bit now. Or but the last film did this as well, where they just feel this need to make the Bond girls, like, really dumb. And it's not that every Bond girl has been super smart, but it seems like there's been a conscious choice to have at least one Bond girl in these films be the stupid one and do stupid things. Yep. And for this film, it's very much rosy because she's just kind of dumb and silly and just kind of useless throughout these films. But it kind of makes me appreciate people like Honey Rider a bit more. Sure, the dubbing was bad and, she, you know, the plot line didn't really kind of play out as it would, but she wasn't this level. Like, I feel like we've gotten worse with Bond girls as we've gone along. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Like, as you say, R- Rosie in this film annoying and make silly decisions and, and as you say they've really dumbed dumbed characters like this down and then the other bond girl of solitaire just doesn't do anything full stop <laughs> it's a lose-lose situation i just don't know what happened it seemed like the casting has just been terrible and the characters have just been terrible but it's like we said before with the fundable stuff oh can i remember a name oh oh it's uh, not dominique ooh. is it no, Dominique was the other girl. Are you thinking of the... Oh, I, no, we are thinking about Dominique. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, sister. Yeah. Yes, you are right, yeah. Yeah, so she wasn't in it a massive amount, and it wasn't that she was super smart, but she just had this nice little arc that kind of played out. And it's not like they were like massively in love or anything, but it was fine. But they just stripped this all back and just hired... Just... Well, they're bimbos. I, I think Bond bimbos is what we've now got. Because bon-bos. there's just no attempt for this stuff. No. Like... There's a little bit of a storyline with Solitaire here, which we'll talk about, but it's just, it's odd that they went worse with this rather than better. Like, I don't know if they just gave up or what, but, you know, Rosie's awful, Solitaire's awful. The Bond girls in general in this film, just terrible. Absolutely terrible. Sad. Sad situation. I Hopefully, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead to films, but I hope it doesn't. I'm trying to think of when we might get a decent Bond girl again. Uh, hopefully soon. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode eight of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Joe next time where Bond uncovers the drug smuggling operation, finds out the truth about Mr. Big, and the world is introduced to the fan favourite J.W. Pepper. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you for part two.